Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Reunion Arena in Dallas, where the Mavs and Lakers are playing tonight, was built in 1980. Now, you couldn't ask for a better facility. It's easily accessible has all the comforts of a theater, and there isn't a bad seat in the house. But for some reason, there are those who prefer the Boston Garden, mostly those who wear Celtic green. What is so special about the Boston Garden other than the fact that it's a 1,000 years old? Let's take a look. First of all, a garden, it's not. It's a train station, really. One flight up, and you're on the fabled parquet floor. Now, before you get all misty-eyed about the parquet, take a closer look. Welcome to the Parquet Podcast. I'm Bobby Manning. We got a new Celtics podcast for you. There's a lot of them already. So we're going to do this the right way or I'm going to get fired. I'm Bobby Manning. If you don't know me already, you'll like me once you get to know me. My two guests with me today, you don't even have to get to know them. Just walking down the street, you'll love them. It's Jared Weiss from the Garden Report, CLNS and Celtics blog. And our founder and creator over at Celtics Blog, Jeff Clark. So we have an all-star lineup to start this show. A little show to promote the Celtics Blog, our great writers we have over there. We've assembled a great team over the past year or so. So we're going to really express what they're doing right now, the work they're putting out there on the internet, and our Celtics thoughts on a weekly basis. We're going to be celebrating this show every Wednesday. So this week we're already off that. We're doing this on Thursday. So that's a good start. So let's let's get started. We have Jared Weiss, of course, and Jeff Clark. And the first question I got is for Jared because he wrote last week that our first overall pick in this year's draft, Jason Tatum, might just be the new Paul Pierce. I love the pick, J- uh, Jared, but that's high aspirations to live up to. What do you see in Jason Tatum's game that makes you think he might have some Pierce in him? Yeah, well, you know, so what I wrote was that I think Danny Ainge sees his next Paul Pierce. Um, but then when you go to the tape and you look at the build and you look at the way that they move on the court and the way they play the game, there's so many similarities there. And I think Tatum's game will pour it, up, pour it over really well to the current style of the game, which is playing more from post-ups around 20 feet as opposed to 15 feet, playing as a pick-and-roll ball handler, stuff like that. I mean, you know, frankly, Paul Pierce turned into a pretty ideal perimeter player even for the modern game towards the end of his career when he became a more three-point oriented player. And if you look at the way Tatum shoots the ball, if you look at his shot mechanics, you look at the way that he finds the shots, right now he does it from about 18 to 20 feet. 
But within a year or two in the NBA, he'll be moving that behind the three-point line. I'm pretty confident in that just based on my scouting, as well as the scouting of people that have watched way more of him than I have. Obviously, our old friend over at Celtics Spot, Kevin O'Connor, has been the uh, – yeah. I think he's been more advocating more for Jason Tatum than his agent really at this point. Um, and Kevin's, I mean, Kevin's done some great analysis. I've had some discussions with Kevin about when he sees in Tatum. I mean, Kevin talked to me. I was – I had Josh Jackson firmly in third place on my big board ahead of Tatum, and he really talked me into Tatum. And I went back to the film and I saw a lot of the things that I thought that were like Knight's individual skills that Tatum had at the college level. I really started to envision how those could be utilized at the pro level. And for him, you know, he has a really good post up game. And especially with the Celtics, they don't run post ups very much except for with their guards. And then if they had mismatches with their swings, uh, they, they did a lot with Jalen Brown in his first year. It's a similar skill set that he has. I think we could see Tatum turn into a really effective playmaker out of the high post from 15 to 20 feet out. And I think this is part of a development plan with this team where they're just looking to get guys that can do everything on the court at every single position. And Tatum has kind of a lot of the check boxes as well as Jalen Brown, but I think he's a little bit different. But he checks off all the boxes of – things that you can do out there trying to either score or be a playmaker. He has a lot of similarities as a prospect in what he checks off on the checklist to Markel Fultz, but he's a bigger guy, obviously. I think Fultz is the better player. Apparently, the Celtics felt that Tatum was close enough to Fultz that it was worth making that trade. I don't see it yet, but they obviously have seen a lot more than I do, and I, I'm not going to be one of those journalists or reporters that pretends like I know as much about prospects as the teams do. They've been spending a, probably a decade at this point studying Jason Tatum, and they know him very well. And when they make a pick, they know what they're doing, and their track record has been pretty strong for all the misnomers that are made about Danny Ainge's draft track record. The Marcus Smart pick was a good pick. I mean, Julius yeah, Randle might. This point. Yeah, and like Julius Randle might they, end up being a better player. But the way ahead. they brought Smart deep from the bench to that, um, to that six-man role he's pretty much filling right now exemplifies how these young guys really are able to grow, even though they've been buried behind some of these veterans. So the guy we want to talk about is Jalen Brown. He's got Celtics fans excited. Even though he was in and out of the lineup last year, there was some do not did not plays. There were some big playoff moments that he got. So it's been a big shuffle for Jalen Brown, third overall pick. Jeff, I'm going to swing this one over to you as a man who has watched many rookies fizzle and boom throughout the years with the Celtics. Who does Jalen Brown remind you of in particular uh, among past rookies who have played for the Celtics? And if, he, if it doesn't compare to anyone you've seen, what do you expect just from the signs you've seen out of his game so far? What do you expect to see out of him as a player? Because I've heard some people call him a future bench guy. I've heard some people call him a potential star in this league. And we have no idea at this point just from how much he's played. All right, so you're going to make me take on, put on my old man hat and remember back in the old days and make comparisons <laughs> I gotta, I gotta to the older players. pass it to the elder. Well, first of all, I gotta I gotta call you guys out on the on the the, the sacrilege of, of comparing anybody to Paul Pierce. Come on, let, let's you know Tatum has to you know earn his stripes before he's gonna make any kind of uh, com- comparison to Danny the truth. Danny did it, not Jared. He already corrected that. <laughs> I mean, if we if we got Paul Pierce is is the captain, then uh, maybe you know Tatum can be the first mate or the lieutenant or something <laughs> like that. Uh, um, but yeah, but getting back to Jalen Brown, gosh, he's he's got he's got some. Um, He's got the hops and and athleticism of a, like a, a of a, a Kedrick Brown, if you will. Um, <laughs> he's got some uh, the mind game of a of a 
maybe a, a intellect of a Rajon Rondo. He's got uh, he's even got a little bit of shooting in him, which is not something we weren't expecting necessarily right from the bat. And yeah, so the I'm corner looked pretty good. To see that. Yeah, and so like even if he's just you know I think in his first year they were kind of comparing like re- relegating him to three and D type of uh, you know post up. Um, just sort of limiting his role and allowing him to you to excel in what he does best. Didn't see him go, really come off the you know pick and roll very much. I didn't see him cr- create off the dribble all that much. Um, but I think in in Brad Stevens' offense, he can he can excel even without that. And I think he's going to develop that over time. So I think we're really just s- s- scratching the surface of Jalen Brown's potential at this point. And um, in terms of who to compare him to. Um, Man, I, I don't. I can't really think of anybody beyond maybe like a, maybe a D Brown or a, um, uh, maybe even a Reggie Reggie Lewis type of type wow, player. I was waiting go. for that. I was That's waiting for that. That's what we're looking for. Yeah, Reggie I Lewis mean, 2.0. How about that? That would be fun. <laughs> I would can, love I, can, it, I jump, you know, can I jump in real quick and say sure, something? Go ahead. So, like the Reggie Lewis comparison is a great equivalent to what I was saying about Tatum being like Pierce. You know, yeah. it, fr- it frustrates me when people like Jeff Clark, the birthday boy over here, wow. um, just kidding. But when you make a compare, like a player compare, people try not to make player comparisons anymore because then when they make that comparison, everyone says, well, you can't call him that guy because that guy's too good. Sure. It's like these guys are rookies. They haven't done anything yet. We're basically taking what's the template that you think they could fill. So like when I see Tatum, I see a guy that could do a lot of the things Carmelo Anthony and Paul Pierce were doing in their primes, um, assuming he's not as much of an idiot as Carmelo Anthony. So yeah, I mean like, I just had this discussion with someone over dinner. Jason Tatum has so many similarities to Carmelo, the way that they set up their dribble attacks, the way they read the floor, stuff like that. Carmelo Anthony's issue was actually laid out very well by Phil Jacks I and mean, be Charlie Rosen in a piece. Um, <laughs> it was Phil Jacks mouthpiece, if you didn't get that joke, where, you know, for all the biases that that might have had because he serves as a mouthpiece, he also made a lot of the points that I've been making, I think a lot of people obviously have been making for years of Carmelo, is that the, you know, the triangle offense, whatever the merits are, who cares? The point is, any offensive system that Knicks tried to develop over the years never worked because the ball always got stuck in Carmelo's hands because Carmelo, rather than trying to play through the offense, wanted to be the offense. He wanted the ball to get passed to him, and then instead of immediately making a play off of it, he wanted to get a chance to size up his defender and yeah, try to take him one-on-one. I see one that in the tape. Because, tape. Yeah, so like Carmelo wanted to – I don't know if it was to fill his ego or what, but he wanted to – beat the guy himself every single time so we could prove that he was the best. And if Tatum doesn't have that mindset, which he certainly doesn't appear to have, that's what can make him that kind of dominant player that actually is a great dominant player in the way that guys like Kevin Durant are. Where Kevin Durant is the kind of guy that you, he gets the ball, and I mean, sure, once in a while he'll size the guy up or clear out or whatever, but when Kevin Durant gets the ball, he's making a play off of the catch either way. And that's the kind of guy that Jason needs to emulate. Yes, yeah, that's, that's the Celtics that's offense. And that's the thing with player comparisons. Like you said, you know, it's it's so loaded because everybody thinks of all the things that are, are connected to that player. But, you know, if you can take Carmelo Anthony's skill set and put it into a different guy who has a different mindset and has perhaps a guy like, you know, Brad Stevens coaching him from the from the get go, that would be an amazing, you know, skill set. I always go back to a guy like uh, Antoine Walker. Amazing skill set. Like he had an amazing array of talents and he just 
allowed him, but the, the, the coaching that he had, the ML cars of the world, the Rick Patinos of the world allowed him to develop into this, I don't know. And also his mindset allowed him to develop into this, I don't know, one dimensional kind of like lack of, he never fulfilled his potential. And that's, that's what you scares you about young players is, you know, they have to be in the right situation, right, like the right fit, the right environment to develop their skills and if you give them that opportunity then i think you could have a a, a wonderful thing and and that's why the, the celtics organization from top down we're seeing it with the knicks where they're just a cluster whatever a, a, a tire fire oh, and, and, you know whatever and like, you know whatever yeah, yes we, i i i, I jeff almost broke the number one rule of the show <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like you know they they just know that the celtics organization from the top down has has you know, consistency, they have structure, they have a, a foundation, yeah. they, they know what they're doing and they have a, a place that people can develop and grow and they have consistency for lack of a better word. So I, I'm, I'm high on both Tatum and Brown because they're going to have that opportunity to grow. They're going to have the opportunities to develop and, and they're going to be brought along in a, in a smart, correct way. I- I think the guy you got to point to when we talk about those young players coming up is Avery Bradley. Think of how raw he was when he came into the league. The jump shot, the overall offensive game. He brought the brilliance on the defensive end that we still see to this day. But speaking of Bradley, he's a guy who could be gone this offseason. It it, it stings me. It hurts me a lot because he's just one of the guys who we've become sure. connected to since 2010. He's he's probably going to make 20 million dollars next summer, so that's a big reason he's probably on the move. He's also one of the bigger salaries on the roster. But what I was going to ask about Bradley is the analytics, and this is for Jared, who probably knows a lot more about the analytics than me. I'm coming. I'm reading up. But right now, Jared's got me beat on that end. The analytics don't speak kindly to Bradley. We've seen the numbers, the on and offs with him. They don't fare as well when he's on the court, it appears, at least statistically on the defensive end than when he's off. But we see these big steals he makes. We see these crazy defensive plays, like sizing up Kyrie on the baseline and stopping him. Why doesn't that translate to numbers, Jared? And I think this is a big reason we probably see him gone this summer is because those numbers don't add up to his defensive impact. But we see him visually. It looks like he's making this huge impact. Are the numbers lying to us? So who who's the other guy in the backcourt with Avery 90% of the time when he's on the floor? Ah, there we go. Isaiah Thomas. So that I hear a lot of noise reason, in those numbers. Yeah, so there's a lot of noise in those numbers. I mean, you know... The, if you watch Avery Bradley play, he stands out on defense. Uh, different way than Marcus Smart, but you notice that Avery, when he's on the ball, the guy struggles in a way that you don't really see with any other defender in the league just about. There's like maybe Patrick Beverly, Danny Green, and Tony Allen. The only, Chris Paul, of course, who's probably the best at the position. But um, Avery's clearly a great defender. His help defense has come a long way. And that is obviously the thing that's most underrated because it's the thing that is least quantified and take requires the most attention. In fact, you know, most people watching basketball games don't even really understand how to read help defense. It's pretty tricky. That's why it's hard to do. So that's um, why we have you. <laughs> well, that's why you guys do. But um, <laughs> the the th- Bradley has come so far there uh, early in his career. He really struggled there. He's actually started to, a lot of the stuff that I had heard. Um, he's actually started to admit, I think, as he's gotten more mature, he's gotten 
further past it to the point that he's not, he doesn't want to keep it a secret. But he's talked about something I've been hearing for a while is when Ron Adams was here, when Brad Stevens took over in his first year, Ron Adams, who's one of the most renowned assistant coaches in the NBA. He's been the war, one of the main assistants with the Warriors on their, ty- their dynasty that they have right now. He would light a fire under Avery's, I'll let you figure out what word that is, uh, family friendly. Um, he lit a fire under Avery for his struggles on health defense. When Avery came to the league, he was, you know, remember, he was the number one recruit in the country going into college. I think he was right ahead of John Wall, who was yeah, number they two. Had the injury. And Avery struggled at Texas in his only year there figuring out how to be an offensive scorer against better defenses. And when he got to the NBA, he figured, you know, I'm go- it's going to be really hard for me to figure out the offense part. I'm going to learn how to shoot in the corner, which he was amazing at, so good at that he ended Ray Allen's career in Boston. Yes. Um, and then just be the best on-ball defender as I can. Because when rookies, when young guards come into the league, really any defender, they're trying to learn how to stay in front of my guy. And you look at Terry Rogier, who... His first year, when he was getting those minutes, he was just electric on the ball, but then guys were running circles around him when he was covering off the ball. And that was something Avery had to learn, and I think that's where Avery's made a ton of strides. Those are areas where guys like Chris Paul and Dayton Green really stand out as the elite defenders at their position, and I think Avery has really caught up to them. The problem is, if you have a weak link in the chain on defense, then it doesn't work. And Isaiah, who his defensive struggles, I do I do think going to the film, and obviously I've watched as much Isaiah as most of the people out there. I feel like I watch more Isaiah than most of the people that were writing uh, hit pieces on on his defense. Um, I think Isaiah Thomas overall, he can be exposed in certain situations, like we saw with Otto Porter posting up posting him up in the Washington series in the semifinals. But overall, when he isn't being isolated and bullied by bigger guys. He does a pretty solid job. I think the only place he really struggles is really fighting over screens, but he's made progress there. But it's not – Avery ends up having to cover for him a lot, and I yeah. think that's what it is. is yeah, one vote Avery, for uh, Defensive Player of the Year. Come on, let's, let's – oh, that, You know, <laughs> I, forgot, I should have prefaced that by saying Defensive Player uh, – All-Defense Team Vote Receiver right, right. Isaiah Thomas. Yeah, uh, who had more... know, another point about that, that, you know, Otto Porter, you know, st- uh, posting him up, that kind of takes the Wizards out of their their game plan and their offense anyway. So I think that's a little bit overblown what, what effect that has. So, but, you know, go on. It's another thing with the numbers, though. You well, really it... can't argue against the Isaiah numbers. I, we see him make these good plays every once in a while, but the numbers, it's yeah. like this big guy in the club talking to your girl, you just really can't say anything to him. It's like LeVar Ball with his shirt off at WWE. What are you going to say to him? <laughs> no, no one's going to make the case that he's a, a, a first-team you know, defensive player of the year or anything like that, you know, other than that one guy from you know, the, the you know, Philippines. Our friends in Argentina. Yeah. Argentina, thank you. Um, but you know he he's a, he gives more on offense than he takes away on defense, and that's that's the that's the balance that you take. But what Jared's getting at is that you know that that taking away on defense will take away from everybody in the, in terms of their numbers. So, uh, in t- I'm very much a supporter of the the numbers and a, the analytics community, and I'm not one of these people who says you have to take the you throw the numbers out and you go with the analytics. Or, or with the uh, go with the eye test, but you have to kind of balance them both. And anybody will tell you that good coaches, good analytics pe- people will tell you you have to take the the eye test with the numbers and let them. It's, it's 
it's all data points to, to paint a picture. And so I think Avery Bradley is a, is a very, very good defender. And that regardless of what the numbers say, you can see it on the court. And he's, a, he's developed his outside shooting. And, you know, whether or not they've had success or not with Avery Bradley on the floor or not, I think he's a very, very good player. Now, getting back to what you were kind of talking about before, I love Avery Bradley. I love yeah, uh, Jay Crowder. I love these guys with all my heart. But if you're telling me I'm going to get Gordon Hayward and Paul George, those guys go right to the side. Let's, let's talk <laughs> about happy those fireworks. It's, it's Jeff Clark's birthday today. I don't have a birthday candle, but I guess I'll just light a match and blow it out for you. <laughs> and we're all wishing for fireworks this weekend. Gordon Hayward's right. got his meetings with Miami, with Utah. We assume he'll be meeting with Boston. It's not set up yet, but... We got the Adrian Wojnarowski report. This is the first big whopper we've really had in the Brad Stevens era as far as a big addition goes. We had rumblings on Jimmy Butler. Uh, we even had Kristaps Porzingis talks last week before Phil Jackson got canned. So that's kind of out the window now. But every time there's this big trade talk with the Celtics, they always get brought up in any conversation on any guy because they have all these assets. And we know what happens. People come to Danny Ainge, they ask for Jalen Brown, and he hangs up. So it, it gets him some criticism. It gets him some praise from some other people, how he's been able to hold on to his assets. But we're, now we're at a crossroads where it really feels like there's some momentum with this Gordon Hayward talk, with this Paul George talk to follow it up. The Adam Kaufman report had Jay Crowder, Avery Bradley, and that Lakers pick going to the Pacers in exchange for Paul George. It, it kind of feels like a low ball to me. That's just my opinion on it. But what worries me now is we have the Rockets, who just acquired Chris Paul, who are reportedly going to try to go after Paul George in some sort of bigger deal. So say you have the Celtics on one end with this offer they have on the table right now. They stick to that, as you'd expect Ainge would. Maybe the Rockets give them a comparable offer, and then you're out of Paul George. And then I think this criticism that people throw out there about Ainge hanging on to some of these assets too tightly becomes legit. And this is from the desk of Bill Sy, our fellow writer here at Celtics Blog. He wants us to talk about that fireworks discussion. Is Danny Ainge going to be too tight on these assets to get this Paul George thing done in your guys' eyes? Not in my eyes. I, I think it's a, it's a free-flowing conversation. It's not a, a binary, uh, this is our offer, take it or leave it type of situation. And I don't think it ever has been. And I, it, there's, there's several layers to it, too. And I think the reason why it hasn't been done yet is is because of the, the quote-unquote sequencing that we have to do. And, and there's contingency offers and, and all kinds of things that are, are going back and forth with these, um, these, these negotiations. And we, you have to remember, too, that we, even though it seems like we know a lot of information based on the rumors, I think we're only getting about 20% of the... Of and the, I think we're getting it one step behind, happened. too. They always say oh, that, absolutely. that we're one step behind Danny. Whatever we have, whatever we know now was probably talked about a week ago or something like that. So that, that's just my, my, you know, outsider's perspective. But I think, you know, like I said, you know, Danny Ainge, the, the Pacers have already said that they, they have offers on the table. They know what is out there and they're waiting to see if any better offers come. And I think that Danny Ainge has probably said to them, look, if we get Gordon Hayward, here's what we offer we're willing to give you. And the Pacers are probably saying, hey, that sounds fine. But, you know, I'm going to use this time while you're waiting for Gordon Hayward to, you know, yeah. 
canvas the, the 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 market and see what else I can get. And obviously things change. Things change quickly, as we saw today. We saw you know Chris Paul going to the Rockets, and now all of a sudden the Rockets are buyers for a, another star player. So yes, they could get involved, but that doesn't mean that Danny Ainge can't you know up the ante and and you know. Um, turn up the volume a little bit on, on his assets and, and add another thing in there to, to, to push us over the edge. So I think there's still a chance for us to beat any offer if we want to, but it, it gets complicated when it comes to, okay, well, how long are we getting Chris, uh, Paul George for? Or, or is he going to yeah. sign an extension? Well, Can we actually create that room to create that extension? So there's Jared, a lot of I stuff, know, a lot of moving parts. I know there's multiple options they can go on the Paul George front as far as an extension goes. Can you explain some of those to us? I know he can extend right away, restructure that deal, or he could wait until later. There's a lot of different ways they could go with George. So the the um, the option du jour right now, which has uh, been brought to the light, I think by the most part by Albert Namad down for Heat Hoops in Miami, who's become one of the kind of most present cap experts on in the Twitterverse lately. He's been doing a pretty amazing job. Um, he, he found a method that they could use that um, may circumvent requirements of ordering and due process in the CBA. I was going uh, to the CBA the other night and I was looking, trying to look for some sort of exemption. <laughs> I couldn't, I was having trouble finding it. I think Jeff's brain exploded. It's like going through the dictionary. <laughs> I, I love the CBA. Um, but uh, he had a process in which the they could sign Hayward while kind of piecing together the way that they move about their um, clearing out space in the cap, and then be able to do a renegotiate or a, a, an extended trade with Paul George, where Paul George would have to sign an extension with the Pacers, which of course would be negotiated by the Celtics, where the Pacers would give permission for the Celtics to talk to his representatives and figure out the extension, and then they would consummate the trade. Um, I'm still not because there's different valuations on different assets from everybody. I still I still haven't um, pieced together a perf- I think a trade that makes perfect sense for the Celtics because Jalen Brown is being included in a lot of options. I know on the uh, on the Dunked On podcast they did their mock off season, which is probably my favorite podcast. It's released every single year. Yeah. Um, those guys are amazing, and they had they ended up with a with a so they do a simulation of the entire NBA off season, and they ended up with a trade where it was Paul George for Bradley. Jalen, a couple of the players acquired in a trade where they salary dumped Marcus Smart. And then the Celtics pick in 2018 and the Clipper pick, which, I mean, the Celtic and Clipper picks are like no-brainers to include yeah. in the Paul George deal if you're including him. I think but it's actually pretty much a steal. Assets. Yeah, but they're including Jalen there. So I think then the question becomes, if you're acquiring Paul George and you get Gordon Hayward, who would you rather keep between your two prospects there, Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum? Um, I mean, Jason Tatum literally, I think, I don't know if he told me or I forget who he told on this conference call, but he literally said the other night that Paul George is a person he models this game after. So if you're worried about redundancy, if you have a guy saying, I'm trying to be this guy, that means he's probably <laughs> redundant to the guy. Um, but, you know, but Jalen has a ton of similarities too. I mean, Jason is a more skilled on the ball, while Jalen, I think, right now is more skilled off of the ball, but they, they complement each other. They, you know, they have a lot of similarities and they complement well because really, overlapping skilled big wings nowadays is kind of ideal. That's what most teams want. So if you're able to acquire those two guys while keeping at least one of these top uh, prospects, that's that's okay. Ideally, you want to keep two. Losing 
Bradley and Smart and Crowder would be really tricky. I would rather have Crowder. Uh, I'm sorry, I'd rather have Smart. Hey guys, this is Chris Blackie calling. More helpful in that um, if the Celtics don't land Gordon or George, prospects. what would be option day, C? I'm thinking maybe Rudy Gay. What do you guys the, think? The permanent Thanks. defensive intensity that they really want to have coming off the bench. Yeah. Of course, keep. Paying him is a tricky part to keep him on the bench, and I think that's where the luxury tax becomes an issue because the Celtics, I know, I know for a fact, are not are not willing to jump into the two hundred to three hundred million dollar range of luxury tax, which would shatter records. Um, so they they have to figure out how to keep a bench intact while making this move, which is I think a part that I'm sure they have worked out, but I'm still trying to work out here. I don't I don't think there's a perfect solution yet, it's depending tough. on the leverage. You gotta sacrifice one way or another. It feels like. Do you think Isaiah Thomas is an option to send out in a possible deal if it preserves some of the youth? No way. No, no. Not, not uh, this off season. It doesn't. Ha- it doesn't work that way. I think uh, it may be in you know at the trade deadline or or towards the the end of the year or whatever, uh, or even as a sign and trade later. Like I don't know. It, it does. It, there doesn't seem to be any option for for trading Isaiah Thomas right now. It doesn't seem to make any logistical sense um danny would do it like i think he would he would trade his his grandmother if he had to but i don't think that that's a a, i think isaiah thomas's value to us is so much more than anybody else would 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 put on him that it doesn't make sense of course plus you want to keep that core together so before we get out of here we got voicemails that's the big part of the parquet podcast we're taking your voicemails we're going to get a phone number set up eventually it's spinning my head on how to do it but we'll get it done for now we're taking them via email we got two of them so let's start with this one hopefully you guys can hear it hey guys this is chris blackie calling um if the celtics don't land gordon or george what would be option C? I'm thinking maybe Rudy Gay. What do you guys think? Thanks. <laughs> I'm not, but what are you guys thinking? Rudy Gay doesn't sound that appealing to me. I think Gallinari is an interesting guy. I think he might fit the system better than a Rudy Gay. I think you probably see one of those guys on one of those big one-plus-one deals possibly. Maybe they throw their cap space at a guy for a year to try to squeeze him in here if they don't get one of their big free agents. Jeff, what are you expecting if it's not... Gordon Hayward, if it's not Paul George, what's what's the next plan? Well, I think you obviously have to take a look at our long look at Brad. I'm sorry, Blake Giddens. Giddens? No, Griffin. <laughs> Whoa. Um, Blake Griffin. Uh, uh, he's got a, a a great you know game as long as he's healthy, and there's there's always that but. Um, and there's I guess early reports are that the Clippers are going to make a renewed effort to to sign him and. Yep. Uh, and, and focus on him, and if that means he's getting his full five years max, then he's probably going to stay there. Um, but it's a, at least another option for them to look at. Uh, Gallinari is another guy that I like, um, that he's he's definitely a guy with a um, a good game. I don't know if I would obviously you know throw max dollars at him, but we have limited – this is that one last window that we have – cap space where we can throw at people yeah uh, and if but but the other thing is you don't want to throw a whole bunch of money at someone who doesn't deserve it and mm-hmm. and who might be you know too old to to to, to grow with the the young nucleus that we have so i'm almost in favor mind. of if we don't get that that transformative player like a blake griffin or a gordon hayward we if the paul george 
trade falls through. I don't want someone like Rudy Gay. I don't want someone who is kind of like a, a plug-in sort of, you know, guy who's going to take up a lot of money and take up a lot of space. I want a guy, I, I, I would actually more be, you know, in favor of kind of like committing to, you know, developing the youth a little bit more and, and maybe bringing Kelly Olenek back and get, get trying to get a few, you know, cheaper options and kind of, you know, kicking the can down the road a little bit further. So we still got, we would still have two, you know, potentially high lottery picks next year and, and, you know, future assets and a, a young, nice young nucleus to, to build around the, the core that we've got. So uh, it kind of becomes, to me, the, the plan B is, is kind of, you know, situation normal, keep going with what you've got. Yeah, you officially commit to the long term in that sense. Jared, do you think that's solidified if George isn't here, if Hayward's here? Do they officially go for that long route, right, you think? Yeah, I think they're playing a long game there. Um, you know, the really tricky tricky decision is what to do with Kelly Olenek. Do you really want to commit a four-year deal to Kelly and then lose your cap flexibility in the future? You're basically committing to the current roster you have. If you do that, and I'm not sure they're willing to do that, I would be more inclined to target some short-term options that maybe could fill some need areas for them. Looking at guys like um, Dwayne Denman as a backup center to give them the option of having a, you know, a strong interior presence to work in situations that haven't been working for them. Maybe looking at a guy like James Johnson, who is like a really good all-around hustle swing. Um, Although, you know, he's older, so he might be only signing three- or four-year deals because he wants to lock it in for the rest of his career. There's all there's always Nikola Miritich as a potential Kelly Olenek replacement who was horrible for the most yeah. part against the Celtics. He made me uh, same sick thing with Bojan Bogdanovic. Similar kind of players that aren't as good as Kelly but could present. You know, Kelly obviously was a really good fit in the system. So if Kelly's, if Kelly's market evolves to the high teens, then I just don't see them sticking in it. Um, and of course, he's going to get a big offer sheet that they're going to have to decide whether to match or not. The number I had heard that I reported earlier this year, just talking to uh, executives at Sloan and around the league, uh, right around the trade deadline time, was 13 million to 12 million was kind of considered the range for what Kelly Olynyk would get out on the open market. So that's actually pretty reasonable to swallow. I think it's the timeline is the tricky part. So. If for some reason a Linux market is dry on long-term offers, and it makes sense for them to match, but I'm pretty sure he's going to get a lot of four-year offers. The, I just can't imagine the Nets not making him a good offer. The Nets have a lot of room to work with um, to make a lot of good offers to people. They're going to throw a ton of money at guys like J.J. Reddick, stuff like that. But I see Olenek as like, kind of like the second choice uh, signing for them after. Because um, they acquired Mozgov and I I'm not 100% sure how much it affected their cap. Probably not that much as they were sending out Lopez, but those are teams that are going to be buyers that are looking to overpay guys a little bit because they're on a pretty much infinite timeline T-building-wise. Yeah, no doubt. Brooklyn will begin a lot of Kelly Olenek revenge games. Let's close out the show. we got one more voicemail. All you need is one answer to this and a quick sentence on why. Hey, Bobby. Steve Thompson from Die Hard Boston Sports Fans. Who do you see as the better fit in Boston? Hayward or Griffin? Thanks. Uh, real okay. quick, Hayward 
no doubt. The three-point shot, the wing scoring, they need that. They've needed that forever, ever since 2013 when Pierce left. Plus, I think the defining feature on Hayward that puts him above Griffin is that room for growth. I think we know who Griffin is for his career now. I think there's still more upside in Hayward's game getting into a system that's more built on offense, whereas Utah was a defensive-minded team, didn't really have a ton of creators from out there. I'm wildly intrigued by how big of a bump we could see in Hayward's game if he comes here. Well, as for me, I gotta, uh, I gotta channel little Doc Rivers here. Let's see if I can get the impersonation down. You know, you know, one of the greatest abilities is availability. Wow, the scratchiness was there, but that's Thank that's you. about it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Like you know, he loved his sayings, but you know. Gordon Hayward, he's not going to get hurt every five days. So, uh, you know, I, I think Blake has the potential and to, to um, be healthy for a year, but, you know, it's a lot more likely that Gordon Hayward is. So that that's the defining, um, you know, that, that that's the that's this thing that pushes it to Hayward for me. Jared, you want to take devil's advocate? You're going to close us out with the same thing. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Why the hell not? I'll take devil's advocate. Blake Griffin. Sorry, I had to, I had to make that pun. Uh, Blake Griffin, you put him next to Al Horford and the and roll, the 5-4 pick and roll, whatever kind of pick and roll it is, will be insane. Those are two guys that can be playmakers out of any situation. Blake, if he's, I mean, I would prefer to sign Gordon Hayward because of the health concerns, but I think the fit, the, I think Hayward fits very cleanly into an open slot that would be left by Avery Bradley, but Blake Griffin is the kind of guy that you don't have to jam him in there. It's like yeah. the puzzle opens up to embrace the shape that he's that he is because he is so dynamic and dominant in so many ways. And like Horford is such a great playmaker as a big man that you can run all sorts of lineups there and you know, compensate. If you put Griffin at the five, compensating for that can be a little tricky. But uh, or I should say, as the only big on the floor in Brad Stevens terminology, but. Um, he can, he can be, you know, like all those things you you would think uh, if you were a, if you were an intelligent human being, unlike myself, you would yeah. think, well, you're basically describing someone who doesn't fit. But I'm seeing it the other way around from the devil's advocate perspective, which is that he he doesn't even have to fit because of how dominant he is on offense, where he yeah. will he will be a complete game changer that breaks the defensive strategy in the way that Durant is in Golden State, where he is a, he's always a matchup nightmare no matter who he's out there with. It wasn't that yeah. long ago that he was a top three MVP guy, if we don't forget. And the ability that has come the longest in his game is that passing. And you know the system loves a good passing big man. Two of them would be something else to see. That's Jared Weiss at Jared Weiss NBA. We got Jeff Clark at Celtics Blog, a strong trio to get the Parquet podcast started. We're out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys.